0: From the newsroom of the Washington
1: Post.
2: This is Cleve Woodson with the Washington
0: Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with the Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, January 25th. Today, the state of the Senate, the plight of essential workers, and why so many people in France are hesitant to get vaccinated.
3: So on the night of January 5th, in the morning of January 6th, Democrats were really riding high. They had just won these two Senate runoffs in Georgia, handing them a 50-50 Senate, which with the tie-breaking vote of Vice President Harris, gave them the ability to set the agenda in the Senate, take it out of the hands of Mitch McConnell, and really give President Biden a leg up as he moved to make good on his governing agenda.
0: That is Mike DeBonis. He covers Congress for The Post.
3: However, here we are, three weeks later, and it's become increasingly clear that it was only a partial victory, if that, and we're still at the same type of partisan loggerheads in the Senate.
0: In their first week back in control, Senate Democrats have been focusing on things that they can get done with a simple majority like confirming Biden's cabinet nominations.
4: And if you confirm me, I assure you that the Pentagon, under my leadership,
0: will respect your oversight responsibilities, and we will be transparent with you. I look forward to leading the intelligence community on behalf of the American people, to safeguarding their interests, advancing their security and their prosperity, and to defending our democracy, our freedom, and our values. But when it comes to actually considering new legislation, Senate Democrats are literally stuck at the very first step.
3: The Senate just can't agree yet on what its basic rules of operation are going to be for the next two years. There's a 50-50 Senate. Democrats have the majority because of the tie-breaking vote of Vice President Harris. And... This is not unprecedented that there would be a a 50-50 Senate. This happened in 2001 after George Bush was elected. And uh, they hammered out an agreement at that time whereby Republicans who had the presidency and had the tie-breaking vote got to control the agenda on the floor, got to decide when things came to a vote. But in the committees, they were evenly split. If there were things that had tie votes in committees, the Republicans could still bring them to the floor. But this was all worked out under the assumption that, you know, the party that at the end of the day has the ability to muster enough votes for a majority agenda should be able to call the shots in the Senate.
0: Is that what Democrats are trying to basically have be the case right now? That's right.
3: Chuck Schumer, the new majority leader, has said he'd be pleased to just dust off this old agreement and use it going forward. But Mitch McConnell, the longtime Republican leader, has said that he wants uh, some assurances first on a particular issue, and that is whether the filibuster, as we currently know it, is going to continue in its current form for the next two years.
4: The 2020 election was far from a sweeping mandate for ideological transformation as any election we've seen in modern history. The American people stunned the so-called experts with the number of Republicans they sent to the House and to the Senate to make sure common sense conservative values have a powerful say in the government. So our side is ready to share ideas and work with the Biden administration applying common sense to find common ground for the common good. But if and when our Democratic friends depart from common sense, when they retreat from common ground, when their proposals would harm the common good, then we'll use the power the American people have given us to push for what we think is right.
0: But how does Mitch McConnell or the rest of the Republicans, like, how do they have any power in this situation? If they are now the minority, then can Democrats say, look, we will put in whatever kinds of rules we want to put in. And you just have to basically take what's given to you.
3: So it's a great question. And for instance, if this were the House, the Democrats could do exactly that. In the House, the majority rules, no questions asked. If you have the votes, you can do just about anything you want. In the Senate, it's different. There is more of a tradition perhaps more than a tradition of respecting minority rights. Really the centerpiece of that has been this thing we've called a filibuster. And what that is, is if you want to close down debate on a bill and move to a final vote, you have to get 60 senators to agree on that. And that's really become the essential fact about legislating in the Senate is that you need 60 votes to pass a bill. Most legislation, including the organizing resolution itself, the rules of the Senate, this piece of legislation that actually sets the rules of the Senate, this is a piece of legislation that needs 60 votes to advance. And that's why we're stuck in this position right now.
0: So, Mike, what you're saying is basically that like, they're not even really fighting over real legislation that that matters to regular Americans. They're just fighting over the rules for how to pass legislation,
3: that's right. And it's it's like it's even more basic than that. They need rules to just, you know, fill their committees out, elect chairman of their committees, basically create the infrastructure to do the Senate's business. And that hasn't happened yet because of this quarrel over the rules. And here's a fun fact that even though Democrats have the majority in the Senate, they have the tie-breaking vote on the floor because they haven't come to an agreement on this organizing package. All of the committees have the exact same makeup as they did last year with Republicans in control. Most of the committees still have Republican chairmen. Some actually have Democrats in control because more Republicans retired or were defeated and left those committees than Democrats did. It's all just a big mess right now.
0: And it seems like this very wonky debate over uh, the rules of the Senate and whether or not to have the filibuster in the future, that that in some ways it speaks to, I think, a larger difference in approach to how Democrats want to manage their or or navigate their, their years being in the majority, right? That there's like the one school of thought that is we have the majority right now. We just need to do whatever we can to pass as much as we can in the time that we have it. And who cares which Republicans are mad about it? But then there's also, you know, President Biden, all of his promises about bipartisanship and bringing back some negotiation and regular order to the Senate. And it feels like those two ideas of how to manage the situation are kind of coming into conflict.
3: Yeah, there's an essential tension here between what, Joe Biden said during the campaign, we need more bipartisanship. We need more unity of purpose. However, he's also said at several points that he's not going to stand idly by if Republicans are simply going to blockade everything he wants to do, everything he campaigned on. Joe Biden is somebody who spent 36 years in the Senate. He speaks fondly of his time there. He believes that the features of the institution should be preserved in a lot of ways. But I think that he also understands that the Senate that he left in 2009 is not the Senate that exists today in 2020. And I think he's under a lot of pressure to say, you know, give give Republicans a fair chance to work with him on some of his key priorities. But if there's going to be absolute resistance, then perhaps— you know, other options need to be entertained.
0: So if the Senate is already getting tripped up a little bit by these very initial steps of just deciding the rules and, and, and how leadership and, and power is going to be shared going forward, then how is that affecting Biden's biggest and most immediate priority of passing another coronavirus stimulus bill?
3: We're finding out right now how this is going to work. President Biden, even before he was inaugurated, proposed a a really sweeping package, $1.9 trillion in spending, a minimum wage hike, vaccine funding, stimulus checks. And so far, from the Republican side, it's been greeted as too much too soon. Congress, just before New Year's, passed a $900 billion package aimed at addressing the coronavirus pandemic. Now there's a lot of senators saying, we just did this. Why are we going to go back immediately and spend all this much more money? Now, this includes some really key sort of moderate senators that Biden is going to have to rely on if he's going to do anything bipartisan. People like Susan Collins, people like Rob Portman of Ohio, Mitt Romney of Utah. These are senators that he's going to have to have in his corner if he's going to get anything bipartisan done. And so far, they've been issuing a lot of skepticism of what he's put forward.
0: And then for Democrats who are both trying to deliver on the promises that they made, but also try to adhere to some semblance of bipartisanship in the coming weeks and months, it seems like that gets even more complicated once you bring impeachment into the picture. Um, and, And tonight, on Monday night, the articles of impeachment are getting sent over to the Senate, and then they are the ones who have to decide how to proceed going forward. How do you anticipate that that will exacerbate some of these tensions that we're already seeing inside the Senate.
3: The thing to know about impeachment in the Senate is, number one, it has the potential to be incredibly divisive. In the House, this was a bipartisan vote to impeach President Trump a second time. Ten Republican House members supported impeachment. But the vast majority of Republicans stuck with the president. And the Republicans in the Senate are under immense pressure to stand by President Trump, who remains the most popular and unifying figure in their party and make sure that he does not get banned from future office, which is a potential outcome of this proceeding. The other thing you need to know about impeachment in the Senate is that it's incredibly disruptive. It basically precludes any other Senate business from happening at the same time. Uh, it's it's a full day of a uh, uh, of trial proceedings. Uh, President Trump's first trial lasted 21 days. You know, this trial, while people are talking about it, lasting not quite as long. No one can say for sure how long it's going to take. And it's going to be absolutely devastating to President Biden's hopes of advancing legislation he wants to work on, like the the coronavirus package, or even just confirming his cabinet nominees. Republicans have made it clear that they're not going to be interested in doing sort of a split schedule where you spend half the day doing nominees and the rest of the day on an impeachment trial. Once the Senate gets into this, it's going to be hard for them to get out until there's a verdict rendered.
0: Mike DeBonis covers Congress for The Post.
1: There's been a lot of talk about frontline workers and their sacrifices. Sometimes they really do seem like they're treated disposably.
0: That is Mei Ying Lam.
1: I am a freelance photographer and journalist.
0: At the beginning of the coronavirus outbreak, Mei Ying noticed that there was a lot of talk about the sacrifice of essential workers. But as the pandemic has continued, customers and companies have seemed to take workers increasingly for granted. Mei Ying spoke with grocery workers in Texas about what it's like to work an essential job when you aren't always made to feel essential.
4: The company that we work for says that every single customer that walks in the store needs to have a mask on, and we're
2: letting people in without masks on.
1: Um, it's been very difficult. I wasn't sure if I was really sick or not, so I experienced experienced it. We could start with Jacob.
4: Uh, my name's Jacob Strike. Uh, I work at Kroger over on Eldorado.
1: I think it was a little disheartening for him. And the treatment that he received, or I guess the policies that he saw enforced or not enforced in his Kroger store, the checkout lanes, they have protective plexiglass shields between the customer and the clerk. But there was one checkout lane that had a shield that was missing, and he says that it had been missing ever since he started, um, which was months and months ago.
4: There's that, and they just haven't done anything about it?
1: Every now and then he would, you know, check in and say, hey, what's the status on the repair? And he would be given the same answer, which was that maintenance was working on it and it was on their radar. And just that one little thing,
0: the fact that that plexiglass barrier wasn't in place for so long, what message did that send to him?
1: It kind of sent a message to him that he felt like the health of the workers was more something that was a part of Kroger messaging then it was a part of Kroger policy and that workers health was not as much a priority as he hoped, you know, that it would be part of a forefront of uh, taking care of customers too, because everybody affects everybody around us, all of our decisions. So there was a time that he said he had a fever and he was actually throwing up. So he was really not doing very well. And he thought that it was possible that he had COVID.
4: Given that at the time, My grandparents were at my house. I couldn't have the possibility of them getting it.
1: And so he called out sick. He told his manager that he was going to get tested and he took two days off to do so. You know, he scheduled the test and then he didn't want to go and possibly expose people if he did have COVID. So he took days off until he did get tested. And a Kroger spokesperson said that in this scenario basically what should happen is that a worker should get paid emergency leave, and then they're going to try to contact trace. But neither of these happened in the case. And then his paycheck was also short by two days worth of pay that week.
4: Well, I, I don't think I ever really bought into the idea that corporations care about their employees. I think it's they can put on a face as much as they want, but at the end of the day, they don't end up being corporations by having the best uh, employee relations.
0: And what about customers? Because it does seem like this is a time where you would hope that the pandemic would bring out the best in people and they would be grateful for the fact that people are taking risks to provide them with their groceries. But I feel like we're seeing so many situations where customers are antagonistic, refusing to wear masks, and just making life more difficult for these workers in these stores.
1: These people are out there exposing themselves eight hours a day. Sometimes, you know, sometimes stores are allowing them to enforce mask uh, requirements, but sometimes they're not. And at the end of the day, a lot of these people are, yeah, they're they're not being treated the, in the best way. India. Hey, my name is India Broussard. Had a man, a caller an expletive for uh, enforcing store capacity limits. Early on in the pandemic, people like get mad, like I'd be outside cleaning the cars and they would get mad and be like, wait, sir, you can't go in yet. And they like somebody called me the B word. And I was like, so you're just going to cuss at me. And then Darren, he was cursed out by a woman who came back the next week and cursed him out again. And, you know, when she checked out and it's really unfortunate because, you know, I think that. Really, truly, everybody is going through something. Darren lost two friends to COVID, you know, and still he has to go to the grocery store. And, you know, whenever somebody lashes out at him, he just has to take it.
2: You can't fight back, which is that is the mortally good thing to do. But that doesn't make it less hurtful.
0: When you talk to these workers, did they say what they were hoping for or what they hope will change?
1: They just really wanted empathy, you know? And I think that's what everybody wants, regardless whether they're in grocery work or not. There's a maybe lack of people seeing each other as people, um, as people who are going through things themselves and, you know, may have a family member in the hospital, may have known somebody who got COVID, may just be going through anxiety from, you know, being exposed day after day. They just want people to have a little bit more compassion, as many of these grocery workers are trying to exhibit, you know, in their day-to-day work.
0: Mei Ying Lam is a freelance journalist who writes for The Post. And now, one more thing on the rollout of the coronavirus vaccine in France.
2: So the first week of the vaccine rollout, which was the last week of December, it was extremely slow.
0: That's foreign correspondent Rick Nowak reporting from Paris.
2: And the reasons for that are not necessarily that France doesn't want to protect its population, but rather because... 60% of the population in, in, in France is actually not in favor or, or does not believe that, that they will get vaccinated against the coronavirus. So there's a lot of skepticism here. It's one of the world's most uh, vaccine-skeptical nations, and politicians here are very, very much aware of that.
3: Français, Français, mes chers compatriotes
2: de l'Hexagone,
3: d'Outre-mer et de l'étranger.
2: French President Emmanuel Macron has played an ambivalent role. He's appealed to the French to trust the science and to trust scientists. L'espoir est là. L'espoir est là. He said it is a hope for the country that those vaccines exist. Impensable il y a encore quelques mois. But he hasn't really thrown his full support behind the idea that every French person should get vaccinated. It hasn't been the sort of full-on support other European leaders have given. In the first week, only around 500 people got vaccinated in France, which is the second most populous country in Europe. So when you compare that to Germany, for instance, that started vaccinations around the same time France did. They had almost completed 300,000 vaccinations by the end of the first week, so many times more than France did. And this triggered enormous criticism in, in France.
3: Oui, c'est vrai. Notre problème de vaccination a démarré plus lentement que
0: dans d'autres pays.
2: The uh, French Prime Minister Jean Castex went on. French TV and held a news conference after essentially what was one week of fierce criticism of the rollout of this vaccination campaign. But the message he delivered to the nation, it wasn't exactly urgent. What he said was essentially that everyone who wishes to will have access to the vaccine but that it won't be mandatory, and that you know doctors will continue monitoring the the side effects, of course. France is really a, a curious case in this in this sense. Uh, it used to be one of the world's most vaccine approving countries back in two thousand and five. Nine out of 10 people here would say uh, that they were broadly in favor of vaccinations and vaccines. But that really changed in 2009 when the world sort of saw itself confronted with H1N1 influenza. So the country tried to launch one of its most ambitious vaccination campaigns, get everyone vaccinated. But... It turned out later on that the H1N1 virus was not, in fact, as dangerous as scientists had feared it to be. And a lot of French, they suddenly felt misled. So within a few months, you saw pretty much a complete reversal of public opinion in France from from this very vaccine-approving country towards a nation that's been very skeptical ever since. If France does not succeed at um, increasing the level of support for getting the vaccine, then that certainly is bad news for the country's long-term fight against um, the coronavirus. There certainly is a concern, especially about the so-called British variant of the coronavirus that could take over in France and could result or trigger a surge in cases that that could threaten to overwhelm the hospital system in the next months or so, and um, that the country might have to go into a third lockdown.
0: Rick Nowak is The Post's foreign correspondent based in Paris. yet, check out the offer we've got going exclusively for podcast listeners. $59 total for a two-year digital subscription to The Washington Post. It's an affordable way for you to help make this daily podcast possible. To sign up, go to washingtonpost.com slash subscribe or find a link in today's show notes. This offer runs through the end of this week, so don't miss your chance to show support for our podcast. And thanks.